What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. This is episode 95. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me as per usual, Ben Fisher. How's it going, dude? Going really well. Oh, man. 95 episodes? Like, what? Yeah. What are we doing for 100? Should we talk about that? Should we have a meeting about that or something? Should we plan it or just kind of wing it? I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure we'll have something together. Come, It's like five weeks away. We've got so much time. Maybe this is a diversion. Maybe we've already been planning for months and it's a, a massive extravaganza. And then they, I'm making a face at Zach right now. <laughs> Could be. All right. Well, this, anyway. week, this week we are saying goodbye to Kamigawa at, in our format for a well to Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. Before we get into all of that, of course, the usual housekeeping. Check out the Discord if you have not joined already. It's the best place to be to interact with us, the rest of the Traficionado community, and just discuss picks and life and nonsense and all sorts of different things. We have a channel for just about everything over there, so check that out. The link to it is in our episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. Huge, huge thanks to all of our patrons that continue to support us each and every week. We could not do this without you guys. The awesome art that we were able to get for our video versions of the show, our, I mean, frankly, just doing the show this long in the first place, our hosting, our editing, all of it couldn't do it without you guys. So thank you so much for all of your support. And for those of you continuing to do that, it's really been incredible. And thanks to those who have in the past uh, helped us out. You know, we know sometimes life happens and that's the great part about Patreon that you can kind of sign up and support your favorite creators whenever you feel like it and you can back out whenever you want. No strings attached. Perks over there include things like our Draft Doctor series, stickers, show notes, unedited recordings of the show, our Draft Chef Hero cards sent right to you, signed by both of us, and of course, access to our monthly office hours for those of you in the Squadron Hawks here. Again, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash Draft Chef Pod. All right, on to our crack draft type thing. Ben, what do you have for us this week? Oh, I've got a pack one, pick one from Zendikar Rising. One of my personal favorite formats, one which I perform much better at than Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. This is one where I'm very confident that I know what I'm talking about. So uh, it's a pack one, pick one, because this is up in quick draft for, I think, uh, another few days at the time of release. And I have been jamming this set nonstop because, well, let's just say I'm, I'm grinding them. I think I entered Mythic at around 66-ish, and then uh, thank Thanks to some drifts, I was down into the hundreds. I think I'm currently drifted down to the past 200, but I'll climb my way back up. Don't worry. First card out of the pack, Vanquish the Weak. Solid removal spell, but it's not one of the best ones. This is the third best black removal spell at common behind Subtle Strike and whatever the party one is, the five out one that gets cheaper. So it's fine, but you really only want this if you didn't pick up another copies of the others. Next up, Tajuru Snarecaster. That's the three mana one for reach. Don't play it. <laughs> it's not good. Tajuru Blightblade is much better. It is a one mana one one death touch. It is notably an elf rogue for those rare green rogue decks. This will show up in the uh, the green late game decks, particularly Kicker wants this sometimes if they need to stabilize on the ground while they land their bigger kicked threats. Next up, Smite the Monstrous. Four mana instant. Destroy a creature with power four or greater. If you're playing a a desperate slow black white deck and you again didn't pick up the good black removal i would play practice tactics over this one like this is just too slow and clunky and sometimes their creature that's really good will only have three power so i don't recommend smite out of this pack so far i'm taking the blade blade next up we got mesa links one of the white for a two one and as long as it's your turn it gets plus o plus two notably it is a cat and it does not have any party subtypes and that means it is bad in this set you want as many party subtypes as possible making uh, the old construct one of the pretty much the best thing you can ever hope to have. So Mesa Links, it's not a bad two drop. It's not a bad aggressive card. It wears counters well. It even wears equipment pretty well, but it doesn't have any party subtypes and it just doesn't vibe with the synergy of the set. Next up, easy pick from this pack so far, Core Celebrant. Two and a white, one four. Whenever it or another creature enters the battlefield or your control, gain a life. This is the crux of the black-white life gain deck. You want four of these. You want eight of these if you can. Really, what decides whether your black-white life gain deck will be good or not is whether or not you can draft enough Core Celebrants. That's yeah. really it. Yeah, this is my favorite archetype in this format, and Core Celebrant did a lot of the work in that deck. Snap pickup right now. I'm windmill slamming this and moving on with my life. Yep. 
This is a kind of an uber combo with a tended healer, the best three into four curve in the set, where you slam a core celebrant, make a nice blocker, gain a bit of life. And then the next turn you play, make a cat, gain two life off the exchange. And then every time you play a creature, you're gaining a two life and making a cat. Like that's just unbeatable. Next up here, Fisher Wizard. One in a red for a two one. When it enters the battlefield, you may discard a card. If you do, draw a card. If you have a Fisher Wizard in your deck, don't you dare play out that last land from your hand because you will be very sorry when you do. I would say more reps in this format than most people and I have made that mistake and I do not make it now. As long as you have a Fisher Wizard, always sandbag that last land because when you rip Fisher Wizard off the top, you just discard your lands and then who knows, maybe you draw on something to get you out of whatever situation you're in. So Fisher Wizard, it does have the subtype but this is one of the worst two drops that you can hope to have. There's much better warriors, particularly Grotag Bugcatcher and I actually prefer Cheater Peak Ambusher over this as well. However, if you're looking for the, uh, the party archetype, you do want maybe one to two of these in your deck, preferably one. Ardent Electromancer does not pair well with this. If you go Fisher Wizard into the Electromancer, it only floats one red mana off the Electromancer. And unless you're playing like a one drop, I don't know, you would have already wanted to play your uh, your sneaky rogue, the one mana one, one, whatever that thing's called. So uh, I don't know. Uh, Fisher Wizard, you want one of, you don't want to take it first. Still on the Celebrant. Next up is Expedition Champion. This is often part of some solid black-red or red-white warriors or party decks. And it's not too hard. It's pretty normal if you're, even if you are playing like black-red party, it's pretty normal that you will have a uh, like another warrior on the battlefield. Thankfully, Stonework Pack Feast counts as everything. So for example, if you go the one drop rogue into Stonework Pack Beast into Ardent Electromancer, that would float three red mana. Then you could cast the Expedition Champion off of it. And that's you know just another reason why the Stonework Pack Beast is amazing because this will count that as a warrior. And then your Expedition Champion is just a, a, a three mana four three. And this thing hits hard with other warriors. This will kill your opponent pretty quick. Next up is Dauntless Survivor. That's one of the green for a 1-1. ETV put a counter on something. Nope. <laughs> it's a it's a, a warrior, but green is not the best color to be in, in the set unless you're specifically in blue-green kicker. And then this isn't the two-drop that you want. Last of our comments here is Cleric of Chill Depths. That's the one of the blue 1-3. When it blocks a creature, that creature doesn't untap during its controller's next untap step. Yeah, also, nah. So what do you want here, Zach? Definitely the core celebrant. It's not really close. Yep, I agree. First uncommon up, it actually comes pretty close. It might be not the celebrant. I love Thwart the Graves. This is the four black black return up to one creature and then up to one party member from your graveyard to the battlefield. And it costs one less for each creature in your party. So it can be a little bit annoying because sometimes the time you want to most reanimate two creatures is after your board has been dealt with, meaning that it'll likely cost the full six and not less. But, you know, when, when you are ahead, this will just really close up the game. I'm returning a, a Shatter Skull Smash or something like this just really ends the game quickly. But this is also a good way to rebuy enters the battlefield effects like uh, like the, the Cleric to any any of the Clerics with, with solid ETBs to really close up the game with life gain and drain. I would probably take Thwart the Grave over Core Celebrant as Thwart does go better in both Black Red Party and Black White Life Gain. This Core Celebrant is good specifically in Black White Life Gain, although it is the best card in that deck. If we're talking about just a strict pack one pick one, I'm on the Thwart. Next up, a very similar theme card, Journey to Oblivion. That's the four and a white O-ring effect. It ETVs, exiles, a non-land permanent, and uh, it costs one less for each party member. So this can be just one white exile non-land permanent. This is kind of a seed for the blue-white party deck, which wasn't nearly as good as black-red, but it does come together every once in a while. It's also just a strong white removal spell. Like, you can do this for three mana, two mana, sometimes even one mana some of the time. I'm probably taking Thwart over this, but it's probably the next best card. Bane Veil. It's our MDFC for this pack. One and a blue. Creatures your opponent's control get minus two, minus zero until on a turn. And on the back is a land that enters tapped and taps for blue. This is one of the worst MDFCs in the set. It's very good, but I'm still taking Thwart. What are you on so far? Yeah, I'm still torn on the core celebrant. I think because it triggers on creatures and not clerics, I, I put it a little bit higher in non-cleric decks. But mm. Thwart is really good. Journey to Oblivion is also very good. My worry about passing the core celebrant is that you're just signaling to the person you pass to that I'm not interested in playing clerics. So while Thwart go does go better in multiple decks, I feel like by passing a core celebrant, you're cutting yourself off of one of those decks in the next pack. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's overthinking things, and and maybe that's not a reason to pick a potentially worse card. I may be just, just trying to justify the core celebrant pick to myself, but I do really like that card. So I'm pretty torn. Thwart or core celebrant, I'm not decided. Yeah, yeah, those are definitely 
Oof. I like what you said about how this kind of is a signal. Now, usually we don't worry too much about what we're signaling to the people next to us, but Core Celebrant is the crux of the deck. If you're in Clerics, you need as many of these as possible. It's unpassable if you're already in black-white. So, I don't know. Tell you what, why don't I just save you the decision and tell you about our rare, or rather our mythic, Angel of Destiny. That is the three white white, two, six, flying double strike. Already just dope. And it's an angel and it's a cleric. Whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, you and that player each gain that much life. Yeah. But at the beginning of your end step, if you have at least 15 more life than your starting life total, you win the game. Nice. So this is a weird one. It turns all of your damage into life gain for both you and your opponent. So what that does for your opponent is it kind of locks them at whatever their current life total is. If you hit them for, if you play this and then hit them with like a four mana four, four fly or something, they'll take four and then gain that four back. And then you will gain that four. So rather than creatures you control dealing damage to your enemies, it's almost like they only give lifelink to you. I don't know. It's, it's a bit of a funny effect. But with the other life gain effects, such as Core Celebrant within what? It's not that hard to get 15 extra life. I actually did slam this card because it's, you know, obviously awesome. And I immediately won a game <laughs> off of the angel. It, it's amazing. Love this card. Yeah, it's really solid. It was a wacky one at first when the set came out to like wrap your head around. At, but but it's a really solid card. And then when you get that core celebrant attended healer kind of combo going, it's really easy to win with this card. So definitely slamming it here. I think if that wasn't in the pack, I'm still torn between the thwart and the core. It's really tight. And I think, you know, a lot of times when we draft we talk about the first like three or so picks being pretty much just power level picks mm -hmm. like don't think about anything else and just take the most powerful card and then work out from there what you should be taking to complement those couple of cards i don't know that i'm doing that here because like you said core mm -hmm. celebrant is such a crux to that deck it does technically fit into other decks even though it's much worse in in the non-cleric decks yeah and you know when we talk about cube drafting a lot of times we look we talk about looking at cards that are not replaceable like cards that don't have mm. replaceable effects. Core Celebrant doesn't have a replaceable effect. Yeah, You can find other reanimation. You can find other removal. There is no other card like Core Celebrant in the set. So that also leans me into trying to take that first. But you are kind of marrying a an archetype early on. Whereas if you took Journey or Thwart, you're not doing that. So probably still correct mm. to take one of those two. I'd probably have taken the Core Celebrant if the Angel wasn't in the pack. Yeah. For all the rules layers out there that are thinking it, technically Cleric of Life's Bond is a moderately similar ability, but it only triggers off of clerics. And at that point, you are deep into black-white. So the point is moot. Just a note about Angel of Destiny, that first ability is triggered. So it's not simultaneous. It's not like a replacement effect. So you do deal damage with Angel of Destiny. So if your opponent is at, say, two life, you can just attack them with this and it'll still kill them. I actually did have that come up in a game. And I actually had a game where I didn't play the Angel because I wanted to just beat my opponent with damage rather than try to do the wacky life gain thing. So uh, lots of cool lines that come from the Angel. Uh, one of my favorite cards in the set, and it did contribute to my 7-1 uh, my trophy deck that y'all can see in the uh, the trophy channel. Hashtag humble brag. All right, with that, on to our Fairy Tibble. This is our Rose and Thorn style segment where we share a high and a low from the past week. So Ben, what was going on? Fairy Tibble. Right, so I'm on spring break. As of the recording of this episode, today is my first day. In fact, I just got done school like a few hours ago and we're recording, so that's a good time. I saw a great movie this week. I saw everything everywhere all at once and it is mind-blowingly good. I recommend every single person listening to this go see it. It is, it's a little bit crass, it's a little bit irreverent, but it is also so meaningful and so much fun and one of the most vivid and unforgettable movie experiences I've seen in a while. I'd love to hear people's thoughts on it if you've seen it as well. But this is one that I felt like it particularly captured my brand of, of humor and outlook on life. So it's always nice to see something as good as that. Now, my Tibble, things are busy. I have a week off for break, but it's already filling up and I suspect that uh, it's not going to be uh, much of a break. Another downside, Zach, you probably saw this, but the New York City bombing, man, that was brutal. I was actually at that station just like two days prior or something like that. And it was just kind of a bizarre thing to think about. Terribly sorry for all the folks involved and uh, to the families of those that lost their lives there. But man, the NYPD, their their budget is like the same as some militaries. And it's like, man, we still can't prevent these kind of tragedies, then 
things got to get better somehow, right? Yeah, it, it was definitely a dark moment to read about that. And luckily, I wasn't close to it at the time of it happening, obviously. So that was great. But yeah, we hearts go out to anybody who knows anyone or was affected by that attack. It's, yeah, really saddening. Anywho, uh, what is up with you? All right. So my Teferi this week is that I had a, a, an interesting interaction at work. I think I mentioned last week I was working on an exam for a certification I was trying to get for work and my results came back and I did get the certification and it was for a cloud architect with Google Cloud and I didn't post about it. I had told one of my upper management folks, you know, I got the cert and they did like a shout out thing. My work Slack has like a cool little shout out bot that you can shout people out for doing things that you think is worthy of being shouted out. In any case, one of the guys at work who recently had been talking to me about magic just posted instead of saying like congrats or anything like that, just posted a picture of Cloud Blazer (laughs) as a response to the shout out. And I was like, okay, all right. I like this. So I'm officially a Cloud Blazer, I guess. Really cool. Also phenomenal card. So it is really good good things all around. My table is that for the first time in my entire life, I have no Easter plans. I'm just going to stay at home with my dog, make myself a beef Wellington and enjoy the day. (laughs) Hey, that sounds like a really good plan, actually. Yeah, that's what's going on. No plans. I otherwise would be going home, but I don't have a car. So getting to visit my parents is very difficult at the moment. Every time I hear beef Wellington, I think of uh, our friend Luke, who his longtime handle on like social media and things has been Weef Belly. And I can never see or hear or think of Beef Wellington without like thinking, isn't that pronounced Weef Bellington? And I go, wait a minute, what am I saying right now? (laughs) That's awesome. All right, on to our listener question of the week. And our question this week comes from Pessimistic Corn in the Discord. How do you all organize your collections? So not technically in the listener question channel, but this is just too good not to grab. So I have a pretty wacky collection organization method. I try to, well, first of all, I try to put as much of my collection into active decks as I can. So like, even if I have some like random fetches that could be in like a trade binder or something like that, I try to put them in any commander decks that I can. So that way I'm I'm at least like getting use out of them. I hate just kind of having cards gather dust, so to speak. I feel like that's, you know, I may as well get to use them unless they're like super valuable. I'm talking like the $20 fetches. I'm not talking about like, you know, the good, good stuff. But I don't think I own cards that are like super expensive anyway, unless they're ones that I plan to keep. So the true way that I organize my collection, I have a pretty nice PC desk setup. I kind of have an Ikea hacked desk where I have these two Ikea cabinets. They're, you know, like, I guess you'd call them drawers or uh, almost like little filing cabinet type things. And then on top is a massive wooden shelf, like a massive wooden plank upon which rests my monitors, my keyboard, all that good stuff. And then my magic setup, which is a webcam pointing downward at a, a nice mat for over like webcam commander, that kind of thing. And of course, my tower. Now, in one of these drawers that supports the, the main desk, I've dedicated to magic. So I have a drawer for my play mats. I have a drawer for my dice. I have a drawer for some of the, uh, for my like active commander decks. And then I have two drawers at the bottom that I use entirely for storage. And within the bottom most drawer, I have seven of the old fat pack, I guess, boxes that they used to come in. And they are hyper organized. I have them broken down by color. I used to have them broken down by rarity, but I've been slipping up by a little bit. But I have them broken all down by color and everything. So within all those, you can find lands, tokens, cards and everything. And I actually do have a strategy where any cards that I don't think I'm going to need, like bulk commons left over from draft or the pack that I cracked that was kind of junk, what I'll do is I'll take those, I'll bring them to school and I'll put them in like the student bin where they can just grab cards and make decks out of those. So at home, I keep uh, pretty much everything that, that I want to. I used to have everything alphabetized, but I think I've maybe let up over the years. How about you? Yeah, so the easy answer is that I don't actually have a collection. I have all of my decks and that's it. I don't keep loose cards. I have two, actually, that's that's not entirely accurate. I have two binders of like trades, but they're all rares or cards more valuable than a dollar. What I used to do was I had a big cardboard box, basically, that had separations or slats or whatever to separate out. I think it had five of them so I could fit a row for each of the main colors. And then I would keep a separate box for lands and multicolored and colorless stuff. I gave all those to Ben for his school. So I don't have those Very anymore. Honorable. I have only my like six or so commander decks my modern deck and two trade binders. My commander decks are in like a toolbox, basically. And actually, the prof has a good video on this exact box. But essentially, it's just like a toolbox with these cool little plastic 
cubbies that are perfect size. It just so happens they're perfect size for magic cards. I think they were designed to like hold screws and nuts and bolts and stuff, but they hold magic cards very, very nicely and it like clips shut. And yeah, so that's what I use for my commander decks. But otherwise, I don't have a collection of like loose cards. The, uh, the toolbox is awesome. <laughs> like the, the, it's such a great hack. And I wonder, I don't know who first figured it out. I think it probably gained popularity on Reddit and then made its way around magic community. But those of you that have a ton of commander decks or just decks, look into it. We can like link the professor's video in, in the Discord or something. All right, on to our main topic this week. And again, we are doing our format farewell for Neon Dynasty. So in this episode, if you've never seen a format or listened to a format farewell before, we are going to give away our Chaffee Awards for various different topics, uh, categories, two different cards. And so Ben, kick us off with most powerful card. All right, most powerful card, drum roll please. I've got down Fable of the Mirror Breaker, which is kind of a sleeper pick for this, maybe. Uh, I've seen some pretty high win rate numbers on 17 lands, but really a lot of the sagas, they kind of come in the battlefield, they have several small effects, and then they flip into their backside. Right off the bat, it was pretty clear that Fable of the Mirror Breaker, that first creature it makes, the the three mana 2-2 that attacks to make a treasure, that's kind of like Captain Lannery Storm. It doesn't have haste, and it doesn't get the power buff, but that was a rare in another set. Like, how much mana are you willing to pay for a three mana two two that attacks to make a treasure that's like an uncommon three drop right yeah and then you get the bonus of hand fixing and then when it flips into the back you get a slightly fixed kiki jiki that's amazing with all the etb abilities and leaves the battlefield abilities and everything cool from this set so honestly i found the most individually like the most scary thing my opponent can play that i'm like oh man i need an answer or the power that they are going to gain from this card is going to be insurmountable like in the immediate sense there are certainly more powerful maybe late game cards there's these mythic dragons right but the one that i am probably most terrified in the moment to see is fable the mirror breaker i also have some runner-ups the Kami War and Behold the Unspeakable. Notably, these are all sagas. Sagas were really where you're supposed to be this set. Yeah, I agree. Kami War was my pick for most powerful card as well. Just seeing the run you had with it alone was enough for me to be like, oh, this is a real card in this format. I had definitely brushed it off as something that was like, haha, commander card because yeah. it's five Meme. colors. And like, how often are you getting to do that in limited? But this set definitely supported it. Mm-hmm. Next up, our Shafi for the most annoying card. I've got Tameshi Reality Architect. Oh, man. What a card. So here's how this one... This is also a very powerful card. Possibly even like in the in the late game, like stronger than Fable. But just the way Tameshi works, that the play pattern of Tameshi is that your opponent plays Tameshi. You look at your hand. You see if you have a removal spell that can kill it. If you do, you untap and you kill it. If you can't, you are well aware that you're going to lose in 10 turns. Because Tameshi doesn't kill you right away like Fable the Mirror Breaker does. Tameshi kills you in 10 turns after gaining insurmountable card advantage, gumming up the board, doing all this nonsense card draw and bouncing and replaying lands. And uh, somehow my opponents had it way more than I did. That's all. Yeah, for me, it's the entire invoke cycle. Not because the cards themselves are annoying, but because they're all four colored pips. And it just mm-hmm. doesn't feel like you should be able to cast those in draft, like ever. And but I've seen people sp- I've seen people splash these in three color decks. Like you can definitely play them in decks that you otherwise like in normal formats, you should not ever be able to cast these cards in. And that's pretty annoying to me. I guess the same could be said for the Kami War, but come on, four colored pips in, in a three colored deck. Like that, and I have seen that more than once. Like it's not an un- necessarily uncommon thing to see. Guilty. <laughs> You're part uh, of the problem. Yeah, but- uh, I wouldn't call it the problem. I mean, it's effective. The the uh, the invokes are good, although the red one isn't great. The black one, I think I cast. The blue one, I cast a bunch. The green one, I cast a bunch. When I probably cast less. Yeah, I, mean, I think the green one was probably the best of the bunch. But yeah, green or the blue one invoked the wins. I think it was has definitely won a bunch of games. But network terminal, it really made casting these nice. Just anything that tapped for mana any color, it was really effective. This set. All right, our next traffy here is for best jank. I see we have the same answer for this one. This is pretty clear. Although, actually, your answer is my runner-up. I have to go with the Kami War. It is undeniably jank. Maybe it's one of the best cards in the set, but it is a janky card. Like, five colors that you're actually playing. And then it costs an extra one generic. Like, come on, if you got the five colors, I feel like you just deserve to cash at this point. Like, imagine you hit your five colors on turn five, like one of each land, and then you're like, well, nope, still gotta wait. 
but it actually is just that good. But the runner-up and the cards that you have, the combo, Season of Renewal plus Colossal Sky Turtle. Just this chain to get back creatures or enchantments from your graveyard uh, and return the hand. Again, something that wasn't going to win you the game on the spot, but it was going to win you the game in the long run. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I feel like this is a little bit of a loose interpretation of Jank because it's janky in the way it comes together and how it actually works out. It's a powerful combo. It was like if we yeah. had an entire episode on just this combo, basically. It's definitely <laughs> yeah. powerful. Big Not saying that it's like jank in terms of like, oh, how could you put this in your deck? But the way it comes together and what it actually does is pretty janky. Yeah, there's some other little janky combos. The set was certainly one for cool micro synergies like this. Maybe even not micro. I might go, we're more on the macro end of synergy this time. Something like Containment Construct plus the Modern Age or the Skyscraper Koi or even the Network Terminal. Containment Construct was a really cool one. This one I played more with at the beginning of the format. I think people started recognizing its power and I didn't see it nearly as much towards the later end of the format. Geothermal Kami plus, I don't know, anything. <laughs> Geothermal Kami might win like the best single jank card award. That gaining three life helped a lot. And when you're rebuying something like a Shrieker or whatever, like you're just getting so much value, even maybe bouncing a Saga. Like Behold the Unspeakable, returning that to your hand. I scooped that any day. Next up, the chaffiest chaff. What have you got? Yeah, this one has to go to Aki Warpaint. It's just like drafters don't even want this card. <sighs> yeah, this really wasn't for anyone. I thought this uh, this templating that allows it to go onto a, a vehicle was kind of cool. I don't think I ever saw anyone do that. <laughs> like yeah. no one ever suited up. Like no one ever attached a bunch of auras and like did a Voltron style giant, I don't know, but dragonfly suit. I almost said butterfly suit. No one ever made a giant dragonfly suit with a bunch of Aki war paints on it. You're just asking to get blown out. You're asking to get faded into antiquity. You're asking to get bounced. And honestly, this is a, a two man effect that just doesn't give you value. Like you could spend two mana on this. Sure. Or you could spend one mana on Okiba Reckoner Raid, which like just, just comparing those, it, it's not even close. Yeah, it's just, it's pretty, you know, you always hear constructed players complain about like, like sets being diluted because they have to put cards for draft in there and like you get bad constructed commons but like the really good limited cards mm -hmm. this is like the epitome this of that a... it's bad for constructed bad for limited nobody wants this card why would you print it just stop yeah light the way was pretty bad too i'll say this was my top pick i never cast it nor could you pay me enough to all right our next award is for most unexpected chaff Ben, what do you got? Uh, I guess all the samurai. <laughs> Maybe accepting some of the rares. I guess Ryu was pretty cool. But I would say pretty much all the samurai. I expected these to be cool. I like their fresh takes on Red White and seeing what they can come up with and do. I guess this is the second set. Or maybe, no, well, Strixhaven was a while back. But I guess that's 0-3 uh, on cool, slightly alternate Red White <laughs> mechanics. <laughs> Let's just go back to turning things sideways. Yeah, I was like, I, honestly, I feel like I've been hearing that a lot. I like these uh, different approaches to Red White, but they're really bad <laughs> yeah they're cool let's just make them a little better like a teensy bit better so for me it was uh it was basically just blue white like i feel like that archetype i expected that archetype to do much better but the vehicles just didn't quite get there this time around and i was expecting them maybe i was putting too much emphasis on the card that let you crew more than one vehicle mm. but i really thought that archetype was going to be a lot better than it turned out to be yeah i guess white did kind of struggle besides a particular six drop common. Uh, anywho, top drafted commons, aficionado. What have you got? Yeah, so I did an embarrassingly few number of drafts this format, but my top drafted common was Fade into Antiquity, which, you know, I guess that's fine. It's a good removal spell in this format. It hits just about everything relevant, so pretty happy with that. Yeah, Fade is very solid. My top drafted common was Commune with Spirits. I played a lot of green. I played a lot of enchantment stuff, and it was really a core piece to go find whatever else you needed. Although I'm, I'm pretty proud of my top three. Commune was the top. Uncharted Haven, I guess if you count that, was second. Modern Age was three. And then just at number four was Imperial Oath. I am a believer in the power of Oath. So I was out there. I was the one snapping up all those people's Imperial Oaths. So you're welcome. Next up, we have our Chaffee for worst bad card to lose to. Uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say that I lost to a Jukai trainee beatdown, but it did happen. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm, sometimes those green decks, they could get off to these kind of more aggressive ninja-y starts. Ones with the Coiling Guy and uh, Jukai Trainee and maybe even the, the rare, the uh, the 5 out of 6-5. Just smacking you over the top for a million damage. And green could just go kind of fast in the set. And yeah, I'll admit, 
the old Bushido ability on Jukai Trainee did occasionally make it hard to block. I never fell for it. I never blocked with a 2-2. But, you know, when it takes a 3-3 to trade with that thing, sometimes it can just keep getting in for a while. Yeah, I don't think I had anything worse than that. I'm going to agree with you and say that Jukai Trainee is probably the worst bad card to lose to. I at least never came into a situation where anything was more quote-unquote embarrassing than dying to one of those. So, well done. You I was take all- the cake. <laughs> yeah, I was also pretty embarrassed to lose to a futurist operative, the 4-mana 3-4, that when it attacks becomes a 1-1 unblockable. I mean, yeah, like it's cool. It's fine. It's a neat effect. They can untap it to smack you for three. Unblockable. It just feels so embarrassing when your opponent's dumping like six, nine mana into this thing and then they just keep smacking you over and over and you just never draw your kill spell or you never can out aggro it or you never can deal with it somehow. That one's a bit of a pain. So what was your pet card, the set? Now, notably, not the card you want as a pet, your pet card. Yeah, definitely Dockside Chef. It might be because it was I'm in the middle of building and I was definitely like smack dab in the middle of it when this set came out. But uh, I've been building a quote unquote kitchen uh, commander deck, which I'm actually calling Good Eats, but it's uh, all about food and such. So Dockside Chef was really cool for that. Obviously, he's a chef. Looks like he's got a really cool bowl of ramen there. And the effect is just solid. It's a really good limited card, really good commander card. I'm just excited to see it as a card, period. Yeah, good answer. For myself, I actually have uh, a few. (laughs) The first one is kind of out of uh, happenstance more than anything else. I just kept opening Tatsunari Toad Riders. Like in person, online, I have a bunch of copies in my collection now. Datsunari, I don't know, for some reason, I just kept opening them. And it's a fun card, right? I mean, it's a ninja that makes a frog. It's great value. Three mana for six power across two creatures and upside and just a million nested triggers within this massive word wall of a card. Sign me up, right? Uh, plus, I, I liked these kind of Zoltai-ish enchantment decks where you're trying to do the, the go big mode loop. And Tatsunari just fits right in there perfectly. I think the card that I really loved the most from the set was Experimental Synthesizer, which it was just such a unique effect, one that got to play really well with these red sack effects uh, and these black sack effects, sacking into like an Oni Cult Anvil, something like that. Just very unique and not the type of thing we see and limited that often. That effect feels almost more like the cube effect or like a legacy or vintage type effect. That's something you often get to play with in draft. That's an effect that I don't think we'll get to see again for a while. I mean, sometimes we have the two mana exile the top to play them until the next turn, like that type of thing. But this is just so much more deep than that. So many more cool little synergies. This is one that I think I'll miss. So next up is our Chaffee for most disappointing archetype. I kind of hinted at mine already. Blue-white was pretty disappointing to me, but I think there's one consensus answer to this one. Samurai. Like, uh, come on. Uh, besides Imperial Oath. Imperial Oath, you're the GOAT. Imperial Oath, great card. Top 10. Amazing. Unpassable. Play it in every deck. Splash for it. Doesn't matter. Just put a network terminal and an Imperial Oath in your deck and you'll have a great late game. But besides that, Samurai kind of sucked. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's not even a samurai card. It just happens to be in the archetype and have some samurai in the art. Well, I didn't make samurai, but like... That's fair. Uh, funny enough, like, when I, the few times I did play samurai, the only draws that felt like they were anywhere near good involved Imperial Oath. And then I was just playing like a worse Imperial Oath deck than like the big mode ones. Yeah, that's fair. I was pretty disappointed by Modified as well. It just felt clunky. It, it was kind of like a catch-all mechanic where it felt like the counters were might have been a thing. And then... Modified kind of felt like it was trying to string together a few things, plus one, plus one counters, reconfigure some other stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And it kind of, it, it fell into this weird design space where it tried tying together these red and green aspects, but it didn't really get there power wise in the end. There were certainly some individually strong modified cards. Thundering Raiju's just went right into my Halana and Atlanta commander deck, as did uh, some of the other ones, Kadama the West Tree as well. And uh, even Ar- Orochi uh, Merge Keeper, I think the one is called, the two mana dork that when it has a counter on it, it taps for two. That one's in there right now, although that one might get cut soon. But Again, cool stuff as far as counters go, but the overall archetype just didn't really work. Now it's about that time. Creature you want most as a pet. Yeah, so at first I thought Spirited Companion. I mean, who doesn't love a good little pupper? 
But then I realized, why have a good little pupper when you could have an amazing big pupper? So Greater Tanuki takes it for me. Absolutely. Oh, when, oh, oh, oh. I'm like thinking about, um, and I don't know what the actual size of a Greater Tanuki is, like relative to people. Is there a person in the art on that card? Not that I know I don't of, think so. Yeah, but I didn't what think I'm so. thinking is, relatively scaled by magic-wise, it's a 6-5, right? And I tend uh, to think that big, toughness, yeah. yeah, toughness seems to represent the size of things pretty well, uh, or at least like the relative stats between power and toughness. I would say it's probably at least the size of like a bear, right? Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Well, I was thinking like Korra's like polar bear dog. Yeah, But yeah, it's yeah, maybe a like bit bigger size. than that even. But that sounds like the type of animal I would like to have as a pet. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've come around on Blossom Prancer. <laughs> I love this card now. Even if I do cross out every creature text line and write elk instead of spirit, I do love a Blossom Prancer. I love the, the cherry blossoms in the art, and I'd love to have one of these that I could just ride around on. Kind of reminds me of like uh, like Zelda, uh, almost. Breath of the Wild vibes. I feel like it would fit in perfectly there. Just again, beautiful art, really cool design. And it'd be cool to have an elk pet that's an elk and not a spirit. Well, then you need to find another one. On to our chaffee for cards never cast. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cloud Steel Kieran. I never got to play with it. The rare uh, that lets you not die or something. <laughs> any any card in this set that didn't grind, that wasn't you know, rise and grind, I guess. Any card in the set that didn't result in like incremental net value. Cloud Steel Kieran is kind of the definition of like a one-off singleton effect. Sure, maybe you don't die for a turn, but then they kill this and nothing happened. You didn't go up cards. It didn't help deal with your opponent's stuff. It wasn't a two-for-one. Two-for-one's really were the name of this set, I feel like. And I feel like I just never picked. I definitely opened Cloud Steel Kieran's. I just never took them. I would take the oftentimes something like Behold the Unspeakable over it every single time. And then some other ones, Web Spinner Cuff, that one I, I don't think I'll miss. <laughs> but uh, I never got to play with Kaito, Kaito Shizuki. Uh, a little disappointing. I played Ninjas a few times, but I just never happened to pick up a Kaito. Probably because not a lot of people tend to pass Kaito. Yeah. So I just went ahead and wrote in all of them for this section. I drafted an embarrassingly few number of drafts in this format. So there are a lot of cards that I did not cast. Ones that I'm most disappointed to, I would have loved to play with some of the other dragons. I got to play with Kyrie in pre-release and Kyrie was really cool, but it would have been cool to play with some of the others. I know I, I saw Kyodai do some work as well um, mm-hmm. against me, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. There was a lot of fun stuff to going on in this format that I didn't really get the opportunity to uh, mess around with. Yeah, the dragons were really well balanced for the set. Despite being the mythic dragon kind of headliners of the color, they were definitely nowhere near unbeatable. Like, you could have your opponent slam a dragon and you go okay i actually can deal with this but it's going to be good for them like it is a good solid two for one whereas some of the other effects in the set you can maybe prevent your opponent from getting the two for one the dragons are pretty much guaranteed unless you could maybe like arrest one of them or something overall yeah they're pretty fun Oh, man, we got a fun one here. Now, we've done away with our usual kind of end of the format question, and we've replaced it with a slightly different version of said question. So, Zach, would you rather draft only Samurai forever or never draft this format again? Skip. Uh, I'm on to whatever's next. I'm looking forward to the streets of New Capenna. Yeah, I don't think Samurai was a good enough or exciting enough archetype to keep me drafting this format. I would even swing it further and say... I would say Samurai was so painful to play and such a brutal experience to lose with that I am more than happy to forego the experience of forever Samurai drafting and and go with not playing Neo anymore. This was... It was not my favorite format. And I hate to say it because some of the the effort that went into everything that wasn't the gameplay. I enjoyed the draft experience more than the gameplay experience, I would say. It was just kind of disappointing when like a great samurai draft experience turned into crappy gameplay. So everything behind the scenes, everything regarding the design and execution of the set has been one of my favorites in a long time. Everything about the trailer and the cultural consultants brought in for this and the aesthetics, the art. Uh, the way it was all presented, fantastic. I am so happy they managed to like land this set. At this point, we are solidly in our next question, which is last thoughts in the format. I'm very happy that they managed to pull this off. Like when I first heard we were going back to Kamigawa, I'll admit my first thought was, oh God, it's going to be racist. <laughs> like it, this can't end well. But, you know, from the reception we've heard, and I'm interested to hear other opinions as well, but I think they kind of nailed everything except for the fact that I just didn't love the gameplay. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's, there were definitely different teams working on all these different aspects of the format, but it almost feels like they put so much effort into making it genuine 
that mm. they forgot to balance the limited environment. Not that it was unbalanced, but just like, I don't know, it felt off. Something about it was just wrong. And maybe it was just that some archetypes felt like they should have been more exciting than they were. Maybe it felt like, maybe it was that some archetypes were more exciting than they should have been. I don't really know. Again, I probably didn't put enough reps into the format, but it seems kind of like something got missed there. And I wonder what that actually ended up being. But it was a super exciting format in terms of the hype around it, in terms of the execution from a story perspective and the way that they managed to bring the world to life in a very different way. This is the first time we've seen them attempt to do something like this, where it's a plane we've been to thousands of years prior. And now we're getting this brand new like take on it. We've obviously been back to planes, but it's not this far into the future when we come back to them. So I'm excited to see how they're going to do this with the opposite direction, right? When we're looking back to the past mm. for the Brothers War. But yeah, they nailed pretty much every aspect of this except the gameplay. I agree. I'm starting to build a bit of a hypothesis about my own gameplay tendencies, given that I've had pretty similar thoughts towards the end of Kaldheim and where I felt like the gameplay was getting a little bit repetitive. Either you had the great snow deck or the great aggro deck. Here, you either have the great grindy deck or the fabled mono red deck that some people managed to make work, but I can never seem to get. I don't know. I found the gameplay to be a little bit repetitive as we've gotten deeper into the format. And of course, that also opens up plenty of ways that you can go off the wall with it. You can do all these other, maybe other pairs are getting underdrafted. Draft is self-correcting, of course. But I just wasn't super interested in that, especially when there were some other offerings. Look, I've been jamming a lot, a lot of Zendikar, I'll admit. And, and by this time, the time of the release, Tinkerer's Cube will be up. And if I haven't posted a trophy list by, by the release of this episode, then I have failed because I love Cube and I love tinkering. So I guess there's other things to, to tie us over to the streets of New Capanna. Yeah, there's cool stuff that's a memorable set, but you know, I'll remember it as the set in which I pack one, picked one, Kami War, and that was the uh, the high of the set for me. It, it was all kind of uphill to that point and downhill from there. Historically speaking, though, we should be looking forward to Streets of New Capenna because wedge sets have been pretty much the best draft environments we've gotten. Cons of Tarkir, Ikoria, hopefully now New Capenna. I think there's a lot to explore in a wedge set because you have an extra color to work with and it's easier to put those three color decks together. So what are you looking forward to with New Capenna? Ooh, three colors. I love three color sets. Something about the the individual combinations of wedges, it just kind of ticks like a check mark in my head where I just really, truly enjoy seeing these colors come together into a triplicate as opposed to a, a pair. I think I'm probably most excited for Cabaretti. I like creatures. I'm a creature kind of guy. And we were talking before the show, I am a pretty nigh attending mage. I do tend to play a lot of green, a lot of white. And I, in limited particularly, not necessarily in constructed, but in limited particularly, I do tend towards red because I do tend to like to end games pretty aggressively. Also, a reason why I like didn't get along with Neo super well. Sweet Planeswalkers so far. And shield tokens. That's so cool. Probably some of my favorite spoilers, just Fleetfoot Dancer. So I, I've uncovered a little secret here. Not, it's not so secret, but I feel like I have to point this out as I was kind of the one that made notes of this regarding the kind of paired dance mechanic back in Innistrad. I've noticed that there's several cards themed around the notion of a dance battle in Cabaretti, but it is a literal dance fight. Like these people are fighting by dancing. It is a dance battle at one another, which I think is hilarious. And, and I'm surprised we've never seen this explored before somewhere. A dance battle, but it's actually people fighting with their dance moves. So cool. Anyway, Fleetfoot Dancer, one red, green, white. It's a rare, it's an elf druid. It's a 4-4. Four, four, so you got a four mana 4-4 four, four with trample, lifelink, haste, and no other text. Oh man, that's my kind of card. It's simple, it's brutal, it's efficient. It gains you tons of life, it tramples over and it shocks them with haste. Oh man, I want this card in my pre-release pack. Yeah, especially with like the um, Art Deco style. Like I feel like that would be a pretty solid promo for you. Oh, absolutely. How about you? Uh, any particular cards jumping out at you or any final thoughts? What else are you looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, I'm with you on the wedge thing. Like I'm really excited to see wedges again. Cons was my favorite draft format. Like it's still my number one favorite format. And mm. I am really excited to see if this knocks it off. I'm a little torn in my family. I don't know which family I would belong to. I'm curious to hear the listeners take on this about me, where they think that I would fit and where you think I would fit. But I'm torn between Obscura or what we would used to have called Esper, white, blue, black, and the Brokers. Now, the reason I'm torn is because Obscura is very controlling. They are the perfect mix, I think, of Demir and Azorius guilds. 
Mm-hmm. Whereas the brokers are basically just Azorius with like a little extra green sprinkled in there. And Azorius was yeah. always my guild uh, in terms of the Ravnica sets. Like I was always a blue white mage. Now, obviously you still get blue and white in both of these wedges, but from like the family's identity, I don't know which I really relate to more. Maybe it's the brokers. I don't know. And then when you look at like the actual mechanics, Knives seems really good. Seems like, super really strong good. Limited. So in that way, I'm kind of leaning Obscura, but then I actually really like the shield, the kind of math and and sort of puzzle to solve behind like when to use your shield tokens for certain things and when to um, leverage those for extra value in different ways. Seems like an interesting sort of take and little mini game to play with yourself while you're trying to beat your opponent. So one card that stands out to me from the Obscura side of things is Nimble Larcenist. It's white, blue, black for a 2-1 bird rogue at Uncommon. It has flying. When it enters the battlefield, target opponent reveals their hand and you choose an artifact instant or sorcery card from it and exile that card i do wish this hit creatures in limited that would be much more relevant but i don't mind seeing what my opponent's got going on and being able to take at least one relevant card from them is pretty cool so and it's a two one flyer for three so i don't expect to see this on three that often but we will see how easy it is to get that going i mean we do have dual lands in this format I'm sure there's going to be plenty of other fixing because it is a wedge set. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. We have this cool cycle of these big cards that let you exile them from your hand to give one of your lands the ability to tap for mana of any color in, in your wedge. Kind of similar to the Samurai from this past set, the one that kind of let you discard to go get a planes. I love this kind of great early, great late effect. Oh, no, of course, the big ones, you can cast them from exile. Uh, and at that point, I believe the land loses its ability to tap for mana of, of those colors. So uh, how about I one-up you here? You mentioned Arsonist that three mana two one flyer that might get to discard one of your opponent's cards. Can I introduce you to an inspiring overseer? Two and a white, two one flying, ATV, gain one life and draw a card. Oh my God. Like, yeah, that makes, and that's a common too. That's a common. That makes makes the nimble larcenist seem really bad by comparison. I'm really confused why larcenist is the white, blue, black card that's an uncommon and why the inspiring overseer is a mono white card at common. Look, I don't understand. I don't understand where this came about, like from a design perspective. The larcenist seems so much worse than the overseer, in my opinion. And Overseer is an angel cleric too. Oh man, this is an early front runner for top drafted common for me. All right, well, the Larsenist is a bird rogue. So it's got that going for it over the Overseer. Like, let's be honest here, way better yeah. creature type line, but... Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of cards that you'd probably enjoy, meet Rocco Cabaretti Caterer. That's the X red, green, white. It is the 3-1. It is a legendary elf druid at Uncommon. And when it enters the battlefield, if you cast it, you may search your library for a creature card with mana value X or less, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle. Man, I want to top deck this, right? Like, you top deck this with like eight lands in play, and you go, all right, what have I got left? What can I go get? Also, is the assumption that <laughs> the card that Rocco tutors out, he's going to like carve it up and serve it? Is that what's kind of going on? <laughs> I guess he's doing the catering. So it sounds like it. Yeah. Very sad that this probably won't wind up in your uh, your food themed deck. It's a literal caterer and the flavor text is pretty great. They wouldn't admit it, but some people join the cabaretti just for the food. Yeah, that's pretty great. Yeah, unfortunately, it's, it doesn't work color wise for my uh, my food deck, but there are a lot of good. I think there's a lot of good flavor with the cabaretti, unironically. A lot of good flavor <laughs> with the cabaretti deck cards. Oh, yeah. I'm loving cabaretti. The uh, dance party until the uh, the end of the world, I guess, until the halo runs out, whatever's happening. I got to catch up on the lore. I think at this point, I believe all the stories are released. Maybe now oh, that wow, I'm on break. Really- yeah, I think I'll finally have time to catch up. I'm pretty sure they were doing like one release a day each day for the past week, maybe. Okay, interesting. Which is weird because it used to be like once every two weeks or once every week, at least. I would remember that sometimes you would get story spoilers from the from like the full card set release, like long before the story actually came out that related to that card. It seems that now they're erring towards the side of like release all the stories at the same time as the cards. There's no spoilers, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. It's they're changing things up for sure. Mm-hmm. One last card that I wanted to bring up here was Jewel Thief. This is two and a green for a three, three cat rogue at common. It's got vigilance and trample. So yeah, so three mana, three, three with vigilance and trample. And when it ETBs create a treasure, these commons are pushed. That's really, really cool. <laughs> I mean, this isn't constructed good, is it? 
Is it? I don't know, man. I don't know. Like that, this ramps you straight up to five. If your goal of your green deck is to like, this feels good at defending a planeswalker, vigilance, trample, make a treasure. Like, and we know treasure is a very big theme in the set, especially when you want to be casting these three color cards, especially ahead of schedule. Making treasure is, is a pretty way to good, pretty good way to do them. Also, it seems that there's some cards, particularly in red green, that do pay you off for say casting them with treasure or sacrificing a treasure, and then of course uh, the the Riveteers, I'm sure, will have Sacrifice Synergy being junned. Right. All right. Well, that about does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed Kamigawa and are looking forward to new Capenna. We're going to have so much to talk about going on as this new set is released. So definitely check that out. And like Ben mentioned at the beginning of the show, we are going to do our office hour this month right after we do pre-release. And because it's an early pre-release, you may be able to catch it before yours even happens. Go in there with a little bit of a uh, leg up on your competition in a very casual format. <laughs> so again, that's on the 22nd and expected around 8 p.m. EST. Maybe even earlier if we can like call and get on the line as we're on the way back. I don't know. We might cut out on the subway. Yeah, we'll figure that out. But yeah, plan to start 8 p.m. Eastern time and should be a good time. So, got an interesting news this week. Okay. A long time ago, I bought at a thrift store some of those uh, old McDonald's collectible mug glasses. You know, those like, uh, you know how McDonald's and like Burger King, like the 80s and 90s, they would have those collectible glasses and such things? Sure. My family's got a bunch of the old like Star Wars ones. This week, I saw an article that says that uh, there's one particular glass in that line of like, uh, I think it was like Garfield ones that happens to contain over 1,000 times the recommended amount of lead. And I think something like 10,000 times or it's like an unrated thing in the United States because I think it's banned, like an unknown excessive amount of cadmium, which is a little bit radioactive. I have had, it turns out, this very mug sitting in my bedroom relatively close to where I sleep for months. (laughs) Wow. Is it worth something? It sounds like the type of like nonsense, crazy thing that would skyrocket the value of a collectible item. Here's the thing. I think it's the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) I think they want everyone to destroy them and throw them away as soon as possible because apparently they can cause, particularly by drinking out of them. Right. Just maybe some minor brain damage or cancer, (laughs) potentially. Dude, I know. Yeah, lead's pretty bad for you. Cadmium's pretty bad for you. Yeah, so thankfully I haven't been drinking out of it. However, I don't really know what to do with this now. I guess I should... Actually, you can see it, Zach. You see it? It's sitting on my coffee table right there. It's I wrapped it up and everything. So, like, I guess I should just go throw it away. But... What's the protocol for this? Am I supposed to like, yeah, I'm not <laughs> do sure I have to burn that. it or something? Or wait, no, that's probably worse, right? I don't know. I'm not a chemist. I don't know how burning works. Someone that knows particles out there, come, come, come and let me know. What do you do with a bunch of cadmium? This isn't really, I, I don't deal with anything smaller than like a, a moon or like a, a small asteroid. So I don't need some expertise on this. Yeah, I don't know. But I did just look them up. There's like a series of six of them. Uh, yeah, yeah. And on eBay, they're currently going for like 30 bucks for the whole set. So you're, yeah. not, you're not striking it rich today. I think this is uh, just strictly downside. (laughs) 